So we showed that video again uh, to help you learn what the Ritter team has been learning and uh, hoping and using to help us think about what our future might include. And we'll continue in learning some particular things, uh, another set of skills during the sermon today. But before we do that, we just want to spend a few minutes in prayer. Um, Chuck Reamer passed away peacefully on Wednesday afternoon. And Lighty Brink is on her deathbed. She's not passed away just yet. Uh, but we do want to pray for both the, Rink, the Brinks and the Reamer. So will you join me? Holy Spirit, the great comforter, we pray that you fill the homes and the places of belonging for the Reamer family, for, for Jerry and Jennifer and Jeff and their, their, their partners and children, for Rick and Terry and their grandkids, their daughters. And we ask that you continue to strengthen them through this time of mourning and grief. Continue to comfort them with the reassurance and love that you have for both Chuck and Lighty as you welcome them into their heavenly home. We thank you that we are people who hope, and we thank you that that hope has been so real for both of these families over this last little while. And that the comfort of knowing that you, Jesus, are the one who welcomed them uh, brings, brings these families peace. So continue to solidify that peace in them and around them. And may those who love them continue to support and encourage them along the way. As we turn now to thinking about what you are calling us to as a community, as we turn now to thinking about how uh, you were at work in the story of Ruth and Naomi. We ask you to bless us as we listen to your word. We ask you to help us see how what we learn today applies to our own lives and our own families as well as to our church. And free us to think about what we might change so that we can grow with you and discover your future for all of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What I would like to do today is I would like to read, to tell you the story of Ruth without reading the whole story in Ruth. So if you know the story of Ruth, things might sound familiar to you and you might be able to follow along. Uh, if it doesn't sound as familiar as you would like, this is your invitation to go home and read the Bible which your pastor always loves. So there you go. Uh, and what we're going to do today is I'm going to use this, the book of Ruth to teach you about a skill set or a way of thinking and making plans for transformation with God. This is a skill set that we've been taught in Ritter. And I think all of us in some way or another are familiar with something like it. This idea that we where we are is not quite where God wants us to be. That there are things in our lives that are not the way that God wants them to be. That there are things that we can do to get closer to where God wants us to be, but it takes doing something to get there. And that we are never on our own. 
that we are always in some sort of relationship or set of relationships or internetworking sets of relationships that what we do actually does affect other people who are also trying to work towards where possibly where God is calling them to be. That we are all part of systems. This is basic kind of systems theory. And that we can either encourage one another or discourage one another with the way that we relate with one another and the way that we personally commit to doing this work on our own. Okay, so here we go. So this skill set you have a copy of in your worship folders if you can't make out this drawing I did this week. This is called Generating and Sustaining Creative Tension. And remember, this builds on what we learned a couple weeks ago about anxiety. Shall I put this down? Does that help a little bit? There you go. So remember, there's different ways that we respond to anxiety, and those ways of responding to anxiety uh, affect what happens in that situation, okay? So current reality is when you take stock and purposefully try to understand what is true, and you do that in such a way that you don't pass judgment on yourself or anyone else, and you just try to say what's actually the case in your family in your city, in your classroom, in your school, in your church, in your marriage. See, you just try to come to clarity about what is happening without any judgment and without making a plan for how it needs to be different. And you do so in such a way that if you're doing it with other people, it's a shared understanding of reality. So you both agree that that's actually what's true or everyone agrees that that's actually what's true. And it's a compelling picture of reality. And that you realize that, yeah, there are some things that aren't what they should be. And we want to work on that. So everybody wants to work on that. Now, some people will uh, resist the compelling nature of it because of their response to the anxiety that it causes for themselves. So an example of that does happen in the book of Ruth. So Naomi and her husband leave Bethlehem and they go to Moab because of a famine. So they leave where they lived and they go to another place to find food, to, to find security. And over time, their two sons get married to local women. So they're not part of the tribe of Israel. They're outsiders, but they're insiders to the community that they've gone to. And then all of the men die in their family. And so it just leaves Naomi and her two daughters-in-laws. And when Naomi takes stock of her situation, she sees that she lives in a foreign land without anyone, any man, which was needed at the time, to provide for her security and her well-being. She takes stock of that, and unfortunately, she doesn't do as good of a job of staying non-judgmental. Because what does she do? She says that this is God's action upon her, that it is bitter for her, because God has turned against her, she says. So she's judging her situation rather than just saying, okay, this is, this is what is. But she knows 
that the preferred future, so preferred future is over here where we're headed. She knows that the preferred future for her, as well as for these two daughters-in-laws, is to have security. She even says to them, she tries to send them both away, Orpah and Ruth. And she says, go, you need to find yourselves husbands. So leave me. Because I, like even if I got pregnant right now, you would be waiting too long to marry my son that's born. Right? So she's, she's coming up with some plans here. So she wants security for all of them, but she doesn't want to have, she wants to distance in her anxiety. She wants to distance these two from herself. So this causes emotional tension for them because Ruth and Orpah hear this and Orpah does decide to go. But what does Ruth do? Ruth says, In verse 16 of chapter 1, do not press me to leave you or to turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do thus and so to me and more as well, if even death parts me from you. And so Ruth makes what we call a very big promise with God. She promises to commit herself to God and to Naomi. That when she takes a picture of what God's preferred future is for them, it includes them staying together. And so she makes this very big promise, which may seem counterintuitive to you, but this is the way that we, one of the ways that we talk about having integrity through the Ritter renewal process. That to have integrity with our, in our relationship with God, we need to make big promises with God that we cannot keep on our own. Because when we make big promises with God, we are forcing ourselves to have to grow with God. We are forcing ourselves to have to rely on God. When we make promises that we in our own power do not have the ability to keep, we are putting ourselves at the beck and call and as people who can say, yes, we need you, Lord. Ruth, on her own, has no idea how big this commitment she's making is, right? Maybe in her head she's thinking, we just got to get to Bethlehem where we can get some food. But she makes this big promise with God that only gets bigger and takes work for her to figure out how she's going to live and grow into it. So Ruth and Naomi come to this shared understanding of their current reality that they're going to stay together and that they're going to go to Bethlehem because God's preferred future for them is for security. And perhaps God's preferred future for them is that Ruth will be able to find another husband that can provide that security for them. But all along the way of reaching that place of security, they have challenges that might keep them 
from still working towards what they have discerned to be God's preferred future for them. All along the way, there are these challenges. Naomi's own response to her anxiety to distance herself from Ruth and Orpah has the potential to become a place of emotional immaturity for her, right? If she keeps closed in on herself, she won't be able to provide encouragement and accountability to Ruth on this journey. But we know that that's not what she does. Because what happens when they get to Bethlehem? Ruth says, let me go out and glean in the fields. She learns a new skill. Let me go out and glean in the fields because this is the practice that God had established for his people to make sure that people like Ruth and Naomi were being taken care of. So farmers were meant to leave the edges of their fields for people who didn't have another way of providing for themselves to go through after they had picked and to leave whatever was missed, they were allowed to pick for themselves. So Ruth commits herself to doing this kind of work of the widow and the orphan and the poor She's willing to take on that identity and go out there and show people the truth about their status and their status. Well, that's the same word just said twice. Sorry about that. I don't know what I was trying to say besides status, but uh, vulnerability. She's willing to share their vulnerability, right? And Naomi says, yes, she encourages her to go do that. And then later on, we're going to jump ahead just a moment. Later on in the story, when she finds out who Ruth has made her way into the field of, when she finds out that it's Boaz's field, Naomi realizes that this is her kinsman. This is somebody who is related to her husband. And the wheels start to turn in her mind about how she can use this to help them get to the security that they are craving and they know that God wants for them in their future. And so she sets up the whole plan of how Ruth, and she walks Ruth through what she's going to do after they've had the harvest party. Uh, and I'm not going to go into too many details about that in Ruth chapter 3, uh, but they, we, they would probably not be things that we would be recommending young women do. But she tells, and she tells Ruth exactly what to do to get Boaz. So she takes this situation that could be anxious feeling about here's the kinsman that we can need, that we need to redeem us. And instead she comes up with a creative plan to get Boaz to understand who Ruth and Naomi are, which is to uh, get him in a, maybe less than ideal predicament and uh, make him really like Ruth. So she's encouraging Ruth along the way. And if she had stayed in that sense of being bitter, remember when she gets to the town, she calls, she tells the women to call her bitter because God has turned against her. But if she had stayed there, if she had let herself be closed in in that bitterness and become paralyzed by her fear of not being able to find that security, then she would not have been able to support and encourage Ruth along the way, right? And if Ruth hadn't made this big promise to be faithful to God and faithful to Naomi, then she wouldn't have been able to do what she does either, but they stick with it together and they overcome this lack of ability. They overcome their fear. 
They encourage and bring accountability to one another. They overcome the emotional tension that has the ability to make them want to not like each other, right? Like if you were told, go away from me, that's not a very loving thing to say. Or if you were told to uh, use your body for the good of somebody else, that maybe isn't also a nice thing to say. These are points of emotional tension between them. There's things that happen. They come up with plans to creatively address what's happening in their life, all with this idea of moving towards what they know to be God's preferred plan for them, which is to be secure in their well-being and in their sense of family and belonging. And the same can be true for can be said for Boaz. There's different points in this story where Boaz steps in and joins the system that moves them closer to what God's preferred future is for them as a group. Boaz, when he sees Ruth, he likes her in the field when he sees her the first time. He sets up this whole system with his workers to make sure that she gets good stuff and to make sure that she's protected. And then Boaz later on uh, accepts uh, Ruth's invitation, so to speak. And then Boaz has this moment where he realizes that he needs to make a big promise. And he has to do it in the right way. Because yes, Boaz is their kinsman and close relation. And there's this rule about being a kinsman redeemer that's set up in the old system of the, of the way God had established their communities, just like gleaning in the fields. But Boaz is not the closest relation. And so Boaz creatively addresses that challenge by bringing it to the public square, by bringing it to the man that is the closest relation and setting it up so he gives that man an out so that he can save face in the community and Boaz can take on this role of being the kinsman redeemer. Now, if Boaz had not been willing to take on that, if Naomi had stayed in her bitterness and in her own emotional immaturity, if Ruth had not been willing to make a big promise with God, if the community hadn't lived according to God's design for gleaning in the fields and kinsmen redeemers, if, all, if Ruth had left when Naomi told her to leave, what happens at the end of the story would not happen. Reaching God's preferred future would not happen. But instead, it's what we call a default future. That all along the way, as you're trying to reach what God is, does intend, there are times where you might end up somewhere else. There are times where if you do nothing, things don't stay the same. They probably get worse. And what does God's preferred future actually end up being? it ends up being bigger than any of them can imagine. Because yes, they find security. And yes, they get married. And yes, they have the child. But who is that child? A son has been born. They named him Obed. And he became the father of Jesse the father of David. 
And Jesus is from the line of David. And so all along the way, we see how these small steps and big promises for what we think is God's preferred future actually turns out to be even bigger, even bigger. And that it wasn't just on one of their shoulders, but it was on all of the ways that they lived and interacted and supported and encouraged one another and grew personally in their understanding of who God was and what God was doing in their life and the way that they were going to live for God. So Boaz taking on his responsibility as the kinsman redeemer. Naomi letting her story change and going back to being Naomi instead of Mara, the bitter one. Ruth coming to know and worship and serve a new God. And in that way, becoming part of the genealogy of the Savior of the world. That God's preferred future is to bring these stories together, to bring his people together, and to do more with them than they can even imagine. That this is true for you and for me. That things that are happening in our families, you can apply this picture to. Things that are happening in our church, we will apply this picture to. All the while remembering that this is not about any one of us on our own, but this is about the Holy Spirit who has weaved us together to do this together. And we can be thankful for the faithfulness of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz and their continued seeking to honestly understand their situation, to overcome their fear, to encourage and love and support one another, to address the emotional tension that is anxiety and the situations that look to be challenges with creativity and to commit together to seeking God's preferred future for themselves and for the world. So as we come to the Lord's Supper together, we are reminded that we too are this community of God who are called to be together to seek God's preferred future for the world. And this meal is given to us to remind us and also to ease some of our emotional tension with one another and with God. Because this meal is is this time where we experience this symbolic love and providing of God for us on our journeys. It helps us to remember what Jesus did for us on the cross and in his ministry and what he continues to do for us. It reminds us that God loves us and that God provides for us and that God forgives us for our sins. It reminds us who Jesus is. That one that comes from the line of Ruth and Boaz. And these things make us feel the assurance of God's pardon. That we don't come to this table anxious about whether or not we are forgiven. That we trust and know 
that we are forgiven by God. And that we come here anxious with how we've lived our lives, but knowing that we can confess our sins to God and ask for the Holy Spirit to help us be more like our Savior. And when we come to this meal, we are encouraged to live the life that Jesus lived, to offer forgiveness to one another, to offer encouragement and accountability to one another, to offer and seek transformation for ourselves and others. And it makes us feel loved and like we belong, not only to God, but to one another. Because we eat this bread and we drink this cup together. And all of this prompts us to forgive others, to forgive ourselves, to praise God and thank him, to celebrate him, live for him, and to proclaim the truth about him which I invite you to repeat after me. When we come to this meal, well, I'll tell you that from Scripture, so you, you can hear it from Paul. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we say together, and you can repeat after me, Christ has died. Christ has risen. And Christ will come again. So we we proclaim this truth with our words, and we proclaim this truth with our actions as we take the Lord's Supper together. And we are also prompted to pray. So will you join me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for this meal. God, our Father and Creator, we thank you for this world. Lord Jesus, we thank you for what you have done on the cross out of your great love for us. So Holy Spirit, we pray that this bread and this cup will be to us as the nourishing body and blood of our Lord. To reassure us of your promises and your truth and to bind us together to be a more faithful community of witnesses who love and serve one another in the name of Christ, our Savior. And we pray as you, God, taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.
Amen. So this is the table of the Lord. He welcomes you if you believe in him as your Lord and Savior. If you can say that you believe he died, has risen, and will come again. If you are sorry for your sins, then know that you are forgiven in God. This table will remind you of that truth. So I invite the those who will be serving to come forward at this time. And you're welcome as you pass the plate to one another to say, I think, do we need one more? We need one more elder. Thanks, or deacon, thanks. When you pass the plate to say the body of Christ given for you.
body of Christ given for you, Sandy. The body of Christ given for you, Don. The body of Christ given for you, Rick. The body of Christ given for you, Bob. Amen. Take, eat, remember, and believe that you can make big promises with God because we are sure that he has made and kept the biggest promise of them all. And as we pass the cup to one another, you're invited to say, the blood of Christ shed for you. Lamb who bears our sins away slain for us and we remember the promise made that all who come in faith find forgiveness at the cross so we share in this bread of life and we drink of the sacrifice as a sign of our bonds of peace. And at the table of the King, Savior Jesus Christ, torn for you. Eat and remember the wounds that heal, the death that brings us life. Paid the price to make us one. So we spread of life and we drink of his sacrifice as a sign of our bonds of love around the table of the king The blood that cleanses every stain of sin shed for you. Drink 
blood of the blood of Christ shed for you, Bob. The blood of Christ shed for you, Rick. The blood of Christ shed for you, Don. The blood of Christ shed for you, Sandy. Amen. Take, drink, remember, and believe that the ultimate future that God has for us to spend eternity with heaven, in heaven with him and on the new heaven and new earth has been secured for us by Jesus Christ. Amen.